Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Good morning, ARCF. You guys have been privileged to hear for a few weeks from some really excellent Bible teachers, and I'd like to thank them publicly for the good work they did in taking care of you. But I'm also here to bear the bad news that those good weeks are over. Okay. If you're a regular, you know we're in John chapter 7. Could I get a rambunctious volunteer to grab the Bibles out of that gray chair right there? And if you need a Bible, throw a hand up and that rambunctious volunteer is going to get you one. We want everybody to have the Word of God right there in their hands, in their laps. So you can see for yourself what the gospel writer wrote and what he said. Throw a hand up if you need one. We're going to be in John chapter 7. If you're receiving one of these hardbacks, it's page 888. 888. Everybody else, type into your phone John 7 or turn to John 7. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front. And there are two big headings, Old Testament and New Testament. Under New Testament, you'll see the fourth book down is called John, and you'll get a page number there. Whoop. First question for everybody. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Everybody at home talking? Nope, it's rhetorical. That means you don't say it out loud. So everybody at home, talk with your family, your spouse, whoever you got together with. Everybody here in the room, share with the person next to you. Two things. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? But here's the most important. Why? You have 60 seconds. Go ahead and talk about your superpower. All right, keeping your superpower in mind, keeping in mind why you'd want that superpower, allow me to share mine, flying, because there are certain tax brackets where all you get to fly is Southwest, and there's not much space when you are six foot four pounds to fit on a Southwest flight. They look, there's these chairs, and they say your derriere is supposed to fit in that chair. And you're like, may I have two? (laughs) And they look at you like you're crazy. But I wouldn't have this problem if I could fly, right? 
And I didn't pull that one arbitrary. I genuinely thought what would be my favorite superpower. Three reasons for me personally. One, I don't like traffic. Would that be the most rockin' commute in the whole world? Even if you live a mile from work, you could go five miles up and five miles back down to work just because. Secondly, I'd be able to think if it was a longer flight. I mean, there'd be no one there to serve peanuts. But I could think because there's nobody bothering me. Like, you know, my children. They wouldn't be there. Get to fly over. It'd be wonderful. And super pragmatic here. Sorry, travel advisor. TripAdvisor, I could see the whole world for free. That'd be really cool. So if I call you up and like, hey, I need a babysitter. Why? I'm taking Emily to Paris. (laughs) When do you guys leave? As soon as you get here. (laughs) Come over to my house. Right? In the text today, we are going to see when... Jesus Christ did or did not use his superpower, and why? Read with me. Chapter 7, starting at verse 10. But after his brothers left for the festival, so if you weren't here last week, his brothers come and like, hey, this is your chance. Go down to Jerusalem and show them all your magic tricks, the, the miracles and the healing and your teaching. You could be famous. After his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. But others said, He's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Hmm. Holy Spirit, teach us today from your word. And we know it is sharp as a scalpel, cutting out things that don't belong there, to bring healing, to bring blessing, God, that you'd be glorified as we... Uh, who love you, look more and more like your son. Do that work by your uh, word and by your spirit's power. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask for this grace. God's people said, amen. Okay. So I've entitled today's sermon, Jesus Christ, the man, the myth, the legend. Because, once again, the gospel of John is driving the reader, you and me, driving us over and over again into this place to ask ourselves and answer the question for ourselves, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It must mean an awful lot to John if he would write this entire book to keep pressing in on that. Those of you who like notes, grab your pen. Write this down in the margin of your Bible. By the way, if you've got the hardback black Bible and you do not own a Bible, that's our gift to you, take it. If you're a Christian who already has a Bible, you just forgot yours today, and and you have one of those, uh, if you'd like to take it, all you have to do is sneeze. Because that's your Bible now. I don't want it. Keep that nastiness to yourself. Okay. Number one. Because every good sermon has three points in a poem, right? We're missing a poem today, but that's all right. Number one. Doing something God's way... Is just as important as doing God's work. Did you guys know that? 
Doing something God's way is just as important as doing God's work. If you've been around the Bible for a while, you might remember the story in Genesis of Abraham and Sarah. They had a promise from God that they would have a son. And when years went by and that promise had not been fulfilled, they took things into their own hands and they went about it man's way. I'm going to bring about the promises of God my way. And that was called sin. It's crazy. We love to justify things to ourselves. Well, God promised me this, and I'm going to take things into my own hands to bring it about. And we think that we're just justified. Again, if you've been around the Bible for a while, Saul decides, well, you know, Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifices, but the sacrifices have to happen. He thinks the ends justify the means. And he has the kingdom of Israel ripped from his grasp because of that. Jesus Christ knows he's going to a cross. He knows his orders from his father. And he knows that being glorified publicly in Jerusalem is going to lead to a cross. His brothers are enticing him. Look, you can't get famous just hanging out here in Galilee. Okay? He's basically saying, you are in Nowheresville, Tennessee, and you have all these magical superpowers. Why don't you go to New York where the whole world can see you? That's pretty much what his brothers are saying. And how do you know that they're not on God's agenda? Because John said in the text, because his brothers didn't believe in him. They just see a chance to be the next David Blaine or David Copperfield. Go to Vegas, take this show on the road and get rich. They can't see what's there. That the power is there to bless people's lives that they would see Jesus as Messiah. They don't believe that. So they're thinking, hey, we'll be your roadies. There's no discussion, there's no debate here. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be glorified through these powerful works that are to glorify the Father. He's going to be shown for who he is. The raising of Lazarus is going to get him killed, ultimately, when it gets down to it. And he's going to go to his cross. That's all going to happen. But the text already told us, but it was not his time. Okay? He's going to go about this, exactly what God wants him to do, and he's not going to do it his way. He's going to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in doing this the Father's way. That's why verse 10 says, even though he said, I'm not going with you guys, and he ends up going, is he lying? No. They offered a method that was perverse and self-glorifying. You go down to the festival to get famous, and he's like, actually, I need to go down in the secret. I'm going to rebuke some people who still have not worshipped the Father after I healed the man who was lame since birth. He's, we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. I have to go back and I've got a, some teaching ministry with a handful of religious jerks. But I love the religious jerks too. And I don't have to put on this big show in front of everybody necessarily to have that conversation. Jesus is not going to just do God's stuff his own way. He's going to do God's stuff God's way. If you're not convicted by that, there's nothing I can do for you. I, I've been struggling with this one all week. I'm terrible at this. Because, see, I don't have to trust God to do things my way. It requires no faith at all. I'm going to put my hands on this thing. I'm going to put my fingerprints on this project. I'm going to do this. I'm smart. I'm wise. I'm capable. I told you guys, is a robust theology. <laughs> I'm smarter than God. 
I'm wiser than God. God's holding out on me. Jesus knew he was going to give up his life for sinners like you and me. He wasn't time yet. Some of you have heard the phrase before, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. If you grew up in youth ministry, you heard that. If you were a Christian when you were 15 years old, you heard that all the time because that was very true, by the way. That was how my Sunday school teacher talked about sex. He's like, I don't want you to think that sex is dirty, that sex is wrong. And he's like, it belongs in a context. You're a young single person. You're not married yet. The right thing at the wrong time, the wrong context, is the wrong thing. He was completely right. He was completely correct. And that's true of all obedience. It's true of all obedience. So now I want you to go back in your mind real quick to the superpower that you chose and why you would want it. And just inside your own heart right now, I want you to ask yourself, theoretically, in your own mind, I want you to ask yourself, if my family was tempting me to take that superpower on the road to go monetize it, like, is there a way that I could take that superpower and do evil and be selfish and self-centered and not serve the world, not serve the kingdom of God? Think about that. Just a moment. Give us a couple seconds of silence. Think of an evil way you could use that superpower. Now I want you to flip the script. If you love Jesus, I want you to think of, is there any possible way you could glorify God with that superpower? I'm going to give you a few seconds to think. I'd like to submit one thought to you before we move on to our second point. If you love Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you have a superpower. It's called your spiritual gift. You might have more than one. The Bible doesn't say that you only get one. And in fact, right before the love chapter at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, earnestly desire the more useful gifts, plural, so it kind of insinuates you can desire and ask for multiple spiritual gifts. Huh. Is your spiritual gift something that you're using to try to bless others, to build up the church, to glorify God? Or is it something where others who don't understand the kingdom could tempt you to try to just monetize it? I'm going to go ahead and use myself, and I wasn't planning on doing this, but by way of trying to be humble and transparent, I'll I'll go ahead and use myself as an example, and then you guys can send me angry emails later and say, Greg, you're silly. I know how to talk. Do you think in our culture you could get paid a lot of money talking? Could I get a lot of money talking about topics and in ways that do not glorify God whatsoever. Could I get paid? Thank you. Yeah. It's scary. 
There are motivational speakers that come in for a $40,000 keynote. 30 minutes of pump up the crowd and leave. Check in their pocket. And pastors, we call that an annual salary. <laughs> you know, like, now obviously that's the best of the best. But I, I say that as an example. There is probably nothing that we could be good at that the enemy of God could not tempt us away from glorifying God to use it in a perverse way. And Jesus, spiritually our big brother and our savior, right? Firstborn of the resurrection, he's giving us an example. Doesn't matter the awesome things you can do, they are for God's glory, they are on God's timetable. Secondly, Knowing who you are is foundational to knowing why you're alive. Do you know this? I couldn't figure, I couldn't settle on how I wanted to word this. Knowing who you are is foundational to knowing why you're on earth. Knowing who you are is foundational to know why am I still sucking wind? Some of us think of tight moments, terrible decisions we made years ago, and we honestly say, wow, I could have been dead 20 years ago or got sick, and we didn't know how it was going to go. Man, I, I could have been gone 10 years ago. Why am I still here? If I believe in a sovereign God, I woke up this morning for a reason. Not for kicks and giggles. Go with me back to the text. Verse 6. No. Why did I type? For, oh, yeah, I need to go back a little bit. Verse 6. Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. He's doing everything, and we saw back in John 5, I do only that which I see my father doing. Right? He's doing everything in God's way, God's timetable. Why? He knows who he is. Every drop of Jesus' thinking and words and behavior betrays over and over again through all four Gospels. He knows who he is. Matthew's really explicit for us. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descending like a dove. Father speaks out of heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Few verses later, who's the next person to talk? We keep asking you guys this until we've got our trivia down. Who's the next person to talk after God gives an identity statement to his son? Satan, at the start of chapter four. If you are God's son. I feel like I've heard this before. I think it happened in Genesis chapter three where God had some children, and he said he was good, and he gave parameters, and a snake shows up and is like, ah, is God, is God good? Is he, though? He attacked the identity of the father in saying God is holding out on you, and then he offers them a false identity. You could be like God, knowing both good and evil. Some of you guys, if you even believe in Satan, you think Satan's really worried about your behavior, and he's just not. If you could get a Christian to believe something wrong about who they are deep down, all behavior is going to flow from it. 
He doesn't lie to you saying that behavior is right. That's small potatoes. It's looking at this little battle instead of the whole war. Satan's lies are about who you are. Because one little lie goes a really long way. Jesus knows who he is. He showed it. Again, I keep telling you, he had a spare copy of Deuteronomy in his back pocket and he smacked Satan with it three times in Matthew chapter 4. We should all, if we love Jesus, keep Deuteronomy in our back pocket because it's apparently, you know, there's such a temptation in the church to think there are more helpful and less helpful parts of the Bible. I'm just not sure that's true. We go to these obscure places and we go, oh, I didn't even know that was in there. If you can assault the devil with Deuteronomy, you can assault him with any of the other 65 books. (laughs) Jesus knew who he was. It wasn't going to be shaken. It obviously was the foundation, because that's what Satan attacked. And then every drop of his ministry, again, all four Gospels, we see Jesus focus. I see my father doing this, I'm going to do this. I see my father saying this, I'm going to say this. He's humbly, joyfully submitting every drop of his life, day in and day out. You want to know, Christian? You want to know why you're here? You're going to have to figure out who you are. And if you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, it actually applies to you as well. If you want to know, if you're, maybe you're in a spot where you think you're the luckiest piece of primordial sludge on a little blue ball a little blue marble spinning around a big ball of gas. There's still a human desire to know why I'm here. What am I here for? And I want to submit to you that the journey is going to begin with figuring out who you are. So we're going to do a fun little exercise. I'm going to ask everybody, close your eyes if it's helpful for you. I'm going to read a bunch of very different identity statements. And I want you to ask yourself inside your own heart inside your own head, how much does that statement resonate with me? Some of them aren't going to hit at all. Some of them are going to hit really deep. I want you to ask each statement, how much does that resonate with me? Do I believe this about myself? I am a consistent provider. I am a loser. I am alone. I am the world's best grandma. I am a good neighbor. I am a responsible citizen. I am our company's top sales rep. I am no good at this job. I am an excellent student. I am a terrible father. I am physically fit. I am sick. I am a sinner. I am worthless. I am precious to God. 
I am an ambassador of Jesus. I am lazy. I am hardworking. I am not good at anything. I am smart. I am stupid. I am a committed Christian. I am a lousy Christian. Now, now that you've assessed just a tiny bit, now that I have assessed just a tiny bit what I am statements I am believing about myself, let's ask God who we are. Who tells you who you are, Christian? Apostle Paul, first century AD. Once you were dead. So who am I? Alive isn't a what, it's a who. Because I am a resurrected person. Because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Feel like it skipped a skipped anyway. He gave us life when he raised us. Did I press it twice? I think I skipped a slide. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Why? So God can point to us in all future ages as example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2. Who gets to make I am statements in your life, brothers and sisters? Who has the right? We're Americans. We like talking about rights. Let's talk about that. Who has the right to make I am statements? There we go. Thanks. I am has the right to say I am statements. Who else has the right? Nope. No one. No one. We spend a lot of time and energy talking about our rights. We don't spend any time or energy talking about the things we don't have the right to. Why is murder forbidden in God's law except that I don't have the right to end human life? That's a right that I don't have. 
why is deceit forbidden in God's law except that I don't have the right to lie? God says so. And it's not just rights, it's also power. Because the I am speaks, he says, you are my son, and he uses words to create reality. So when he says, you are my son, that's not a pep talk, he just made you his son. I've said it over and over, I'll keep saying it. You and I, when we think of creation and building, we're like, well, God has some nails, and he has a hammer, and he's got a tool belt, and he's got a cute little yellow hat. And that's how he builds things, with his hands. And every time we're talking, we see the work of his hands in the Psalms or other places in Scripture, it's an anthropomorphism. It's describing a spiritual being in a way that we can understand by the work of his hands. But the Bible says flat out how he builds. He says, Lazarus, come forth. (laughs) That was not an invitation in the way that we tend to think of an invitation. Because if I say Lazarus come forth, I'm like, dear Lord Jesus, please bring Lazarus back. I know I can't do it in my power. Jesus wasn't doing that. He says, Father, you you ordained this moment. Glorify yourself, Lazarus. Like his, on a cellular level, a dead Lazarus, every cell obeyed the most high. Brothers and sisters, you and I will be continually train wrecks so long as anyone is allowed to make I am statements besides the I am. You and I will be train wrecks. Jesus knows who he is. He knows why he's on earth. Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? And the last fun little tidbit, because it's here in the text, where people are disagreeing. Some are saying, he's a good man. Oh, he's a deceiver of the people. Last point. Most people don't want the title Lord to be part of a discussion about Jesus. But there are some people, there are some who are okay with talking about it. Just very few. Most people in the public discourse, 2,000 years ago and now, you want to talk about Jesus, which that's rare enough, We're usually trying to figure out who got the rose, who got voted off the island, fighting over politics. You know, really useful information when you're in hell. Welcome back, Greg. Okay. Talking about Jesus, who he is, who he says, what he says about himself, because he's a truth teller and he is the I am. Even he has the humility to rely on the Father for identity statements, being glorified outside of himself. Really fascinating. When we're talking about who Jesus is, when mere mortals talk about who Jesus is, there are a lot of titles and descriptors that are far more comfortable. He was a good teacher. He was a wise man who had some really great ethics. He, you know, that was just so, that was too bad that they killed him. He seemed to be a really good guy. It is interesting how commonly in the last 2,000 years, when different religions get invented, 
just look, read their texts, read the holy texts of every other religion that's been invented in the last 2,000 years, they all seem to have to have an opinion about Jesus Christ. They all say something about Jesus. Because I've been telling you guys for two years now, the kids can have fun on the trampoline, but when Uncle Joe gets on the trampoline, right, he's the center of all gravity. Everything moves, whether we like it or not. Okay? And Islam is birthed 1,300 years ago with lots of words and opinions about Jesus. Mormonism gets started 150 years ago or so. Lots of words and thoughts and opinions about Jesus. Interesting. Because as a Christian, I'm sitting here, I don't feel the need to share a whole lot about Muhammad. He needed to give his heart to Jesus like the rest of us. That's my opinion about Muhammad. I don't feel the need to come in here and give respect to Joseph Smith. Why is it that everybody's talking so much about Jesus? What, how does he command the conversation? Perhaps except that the tomb was empty and two billion people are convinced of it 2,000 years later. Guys, did you hear where this conversation was? Verse 12. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. Others, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. So you don't, you don't hear lordship in those two opinions, do you? The next verse is no one dared say anything positive about him in public for fear of the Jews, the religious elite, the Pharisees. The can you imagine a religious world where you can't say good things about God or you'll get kicked out of church? This is where people were. Don't let the pastor know that you like God. Wow. I'm going to end with our brother, Jack. Clive Staples Lewis. Mere Christianity, he says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lord Jesus, please, by your Holy Spirit, grant the gift of repentance today. God, maybe... I need to repent for the first time because I've never taken a look into your beautiful face and seen you for the Savior that you are. Jesus, maybe I already love you, but there is a, another layer of obedience you're calling me to today. 
Lord Jesus, please give us every good gift from the Gospel of John as we see more clearly who you are and hopefully see more clearly who we are. That it would result in praise and honor and glory and joy-filled obedience toward you. Take this family, Lord. Take us exactly where you want us to go. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we ask this and God's people said, Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.